Welcome to the latest episode of Take Back Our Schools. I'm Andrew Gutman, along with my co-host, Beth Feely. We are two accidental activist parents who like to talk about all the ills of our education system. And sometimes we talk to guests who actually might have ideas on how to solve them. Today, we have a guest who is probably as knowledgeable about the American education system as anybody in this country. So we're very happy to welcome Robert Pondicio. Robert is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, where he focuses on K through 12 education. Uh, before joining AEI, he was a policy analyst and education reform expert at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, an education policy think tank. He previously worked for the Core Knowledge Foundation and as an advisor and civics teacher at Democracy Prep Public Schools. He became interested in education policy issues when he started teaching fifth grade at a struggling South Bronx public school back in 2002. Before that, he worked in journalism for 20 years, including in senior positions at Time and Business Week. And he is the author of a number of books, including the highly acclaimed How the Other Half Learns Equality, Excellence, and the Battle Over School Choice, published in 2019, which is about the Success Academy Charter School Network. Robert, thank you so much for joining us on Take Back Our Schools. Boy, th- thanks so much. And and let me uh, start with a fanboy comment. You know what I what you and I have in common even before my education career, right? I do. I was I didn't know if you wanted to mention that, but go ahead. Yeah. Oh no, no, I'm I'm <laughs> fine with that. I think uh, in fact we, we are fellow Brearley dads. Uh, I mean, you are now known as Brearley. Yeah. Dad. Well, I was I was a Brearley dad too, and I could actually uh, probably talk myself into the idea that I became a public school teacher. Maybe because my daughter went to uh, to to Brearley, I, I, I joked ruefully at the time that well, someone in this family is going to go to public school, and if it's not going to be my daughter, <laughs> it's going to be me. So that's how I became a public school teacher. Is that is that I, I was going to start with that, but is that is that really what what, what inspired you? Yeah, I, I, well, well, I, it was part of it. I mean, you know, this is not what we want to talk about, I'm sure, but I mean. Um, no, I, I became a public school teacher in 2002 when there were a lot of things going on at that at that point. It had been you know six months after 9/11. I think a lot of us were probably thinking, huh, you know, I should be doing something to give back. Um, my my daughter uh, started going to school. She was a school age kid. Um, I'd been interested in education kind of informally. I'm, I'm on, was then and still on the board of managers of something called Eastside House Settlement in the South Bronx, which. Uh, started doing a lot of education programming uh, when I joined the board. So everything just kind of came up education. And uh, when you've got your daughter, you know, looking at schools all over the the, the city, you know, that suddenly becomes the focus of what you're thinking about. And at about that same moment, I I got seduced by an ad for the New York City Teaching Fellows, this wonderful ad on on the subway that said, you remember your first grade teacher's name, who will remember yours? So it just kind of caught me at the right time. I thought. So you're saying subway ads actually work? They subway yes, exactly. Subway ads okay. work. Uh, caught me at a vulnerable moment. Um, but no, I signed up for a two-year mid-career public service stint, um, and and it is now 20 years in running. So how long were you a how long were you a public school teacher? Five, five years. I, five okay. years full time. I and mean, you know the, the the program was two years. Uh, I stayed five in the classroom, and then got very very interested in. Things that I was surprised to learn that a lot of folks in the ed reform world were either, you know, indifferent or incurious about, specifically curriculum. Um, I mean, I got to, uh, got really interested in the way that we teach kids to read, 
Um, I joke that Lucy Calkins of Teachers College was the accidental architect of my career uh, because I became somewhat scandalized by by the way we were you know, teaching struggling kids in the South Bronx to read and write. You know, didn't didn't make sense to me. And and my transition was kind of from willing suspension of disbelief to to skepticism to um, thinly veiled fury. And um, I became interested in the work of a guy named E.D. Hirsch Jr., who's the founder of the Core Knowledge Foundation, and uh, wrote a kind of out of nowhere bestseller that people may remember from 40 years ago um, called Cultural Literacy. And, and I mean, I've, I've, I've said this a thousand times. He, his work, he was the only guy who described what I saw in my South Bronx classroom every single day. Kids who could you know, read, decode, but not read with comprehension. And when the Lucy Calkinses of the world would say, well, that's because it's not culturally relevant, or that's because it's not engaging. Hirsch was the guy who would say, no, it's because of vocabulary and background knowledge. And that was exactly what I was seeing. So that's, uh, Hirsch's work is probably um, why I stayed in education. I, you know, I, I flatter myself to, to think of myself as his John the Baptist, so to speak. You know, I, I, as I always say, that there's not a single idea I've ever had in education that Hirsch didn't have you know, first, better, and more comprehensively um, so I've more or less, uh, you know, uh, he, he's been the through line to everything I've done ever since. It's kind of, you know, explaining uh, the, 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 the value of background knowledge and rich curriculum to, to, to folks in, in the education, the education reform world who, again, are, you know, tend to be somewhat indifferent about, um, you know, what it is that kids do all day, which for mm-hmm. those of us who've been teachers is, is the thing that matters. So you had already seen kind of an erosion of kids having kind of that shared cultural knowledge when you were in the classroom? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, uh, it's interesting because, um, you know, uh, so much in education, I'm going to sound like a total graybeard now, but if you spend more than a few years in this work, you you see the turnings of the wheel over and over and over again. I wrote a big piece for Commentary Magazine within the last year about how K-12 education kind of, you know, fell into into the thrall of social justice and anti-racism work. And and I, 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 Cop, the, cop that line from Hemingway, you know, about, you know, there's a character in uh, The Sun Also Rises who describes uh, going broke. He said, I went broke in two ways, gradually and then suddenly. And, and, it's, and it's the same thing in, in education policy and practice. The, the, the social justice practices that a lot of us are, I think, quite rightly concerned about are not new. I mean, 20 years ago, literally 20 years ago, when I went to ed school, I had to document my ability and willingness to, to be an age, a, quote, agent of change and to teach for social justice. Uh, we read Paolo Freire, et, et cetera. So th- these things are not new. Um, you know, they, I think we're in a particularly acute moment for them. But, but uh, they're, and again, I don't want to sound you know, cynical or, or like a total graybeard, but, but after a while, you do feel like you're, you're just seeing the same things over and over again, old wine and new bottles, as it were. So actually, I was going to start with that commentary piece because I thought it was phenomenal. Uh, a piece entitled The Unbearable Bleakness of American Schooling. And you ended that piece where you said, you know, we sort of lost the plot. Um, we're not mm-hmm. asking the fundamental question of what is school for? And I thought I, you know, sort of start kind of kind of very big picture because it's something I struggle with. Is, is school just a place for kids to go seven hours a day? So they don't get get into trouble. Is school about teaching, or supposed to be about teaching? You know the kind of skill set so they can go get a job and be, uh, you know, you know, successful in the global economy. Mm-hmm. Is school about teaching patriotism so we can support American democracy? Is school about social justice, which is what it seems to be about today? And, and 
you know, how, how do you answer that question? What in school for? Well, we could probably spend an hour on any one of those subtopics. Um, you know, something I've, I've made a joke of over the years is saying that, you know, Horace Mann, the father of public education, went to its grave without ever having once uttered the phrase college and career ready. Um, as an as an end reform guy, you know, that that that's for the that 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 idea of college and career readiness, just to pick one thread to pull on, has kind of dominated education policymaking for the last 20 or 30 years. So that that's what we have sort of you know, as a matter, decided what college is or what education is for, to get kids into college, to get kids into the workforce, to make them upwardly mobile. Um, I'm not sure that's the most comprehensive or satisfying vision at the end of the day. One of the, you know, I've joked that my side hustle is civic education. I taught uh, high school civics class for several years at Democracy Prep. So I'm very, very interested in the idea of school as, um, and I, I don't really have a sufficient vocabulary for this, but, but school as kind of an attachment mechanism. In other words, you know, kids should get to the end of their K-12 education. And look, I don't, it doesn't matter to me, literally, whether it is private, public, parochial, homeschooling. What we should want is for every 17 or 18-year-old to have gone through their K-12 education, come out the other end, just excited to do something. What is it that you want to do now? I want to go to college. I want to, you know, I want to join the military. I want to go into the workforce. And damn it, I can't can't wait to get started. You know that 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 idea of buy-in, of attachment to the body politic, so to speak, uh, I, I think is what's um, what's what's gone missing. And, and look, I think one of the reasons that the social justice stuff has tended to leave me cold is because I think intentionally or not, it subverts that. In other words, you know, every kid I've ever taught, literally has been a low-income kid of color. I've literally never stood in front of a white kid in a class once in my entire adult life. I didn't sign up to be a revolutionary in that work. I, I, I signed up because I recognized the unfairness of it. I recognized that the things that I do in, in American life and civil society are not fairly and equally distributed and, and the on-ramps to those things are not working. But at no point was my solution to that tear it all down. That that was just never, still is not part of the consideration set. It's, it's part, what you, what you wake up in the morning thinking of is, how do we make this work better? How, how, how do, you know, I go back to you know, the conversation about Brearley. You know, it struck me so clearly when my daughter was, you know, that her choices in schools, my choice as her father of schools for my daughter were good, better, and best. What choices did my students in the South Bronx have? Their choices mm-hmm. were good, bad, and forgive me, holy shit. You know, mm-hmm. that's unfair. But the answer to that is not burn it all down. The answer mm-hmm. is let's figure out a way uh, to make this system work um, more fairly. So, you know, in, in my mind, and sorry, I'm now monologuing here, you know, that that led me in the direction of, you know, curriculum reform, that led me in the direction of school choice, that led me in the direction of of a lot of different things, you know, to to to, to enfranchise the kids that I cared about. But at, at no point would that lead me to, it's all got to go. Can I, um, in response to that, can can we put the genie back in the bottle? I mean, I think we've definitely all witnessed that there is a real trend in particularly history class um, to a lesser extent mm-hmm. English, but there is this um, kind of revolutionary streak, if you will. And, you know, I think it's it's out there. Um, it's been in the ed schools for decades. Um, so the teachers yeah. are fairly trained in this. How do we how do we move that back? Is it is the answer better civics courses? Is the answer school choice? Is it some combination um, of, of those and, and, and other factors? 
are we going to have any easy questions here? <laughs> any simple topics? Any, any you know, fastballs over the plate that we can, can swing at? Um, look, I mean, you know, you're asking me to just kind of summarize, you know, 20 years of work and hopefully 20 years more. Um, there, there's a reason I focus on literacy and there's a reason I've kind of, you know, built my art career around Hirsch's work because I think his, you know, his view of this is kind of the first and last word. He's a guy who says um, quite candidly um, that, you know, I'm pr practically a socialist, but I had to become an educational conservative in order to kind of pursue progressive ends. So I, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, um, at the end of and I've said this elsewhere that, you know, schooling is fundamentally conservative, the, 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 the small c conservative, the institution of schools is where we send our kids to kind of like, you know, be exposed to the best that's been thought and written and said, um, what we value, what we condemn, but it serves long-term things that progressives would value, you know, upward mobility, fairness, et cetera. So you kind of have to let those things be what they're gonna be. You have to let school be school and you have to play the long game if you're a progressive. And I think our worst fights in education tend to happen when one of those things encroaches on the other. In other words, when education no longer serves as an engine of upward mobility. When schooling becomes too much, we're going to blow, burn it all down and, and impose a social justice agenda today, as opposed to letting the process play out. Um, so I, I'm completely avoiding your question about what do we have to do. I think we have to remind ourselves that that's how it works. You know, that that we are that, that this is a slow growing plant and look very easy for us to say, right, we are in the Argo of social justice. We are privileged people, you know, whose, whose children don't have to worry about this. So, you know, I'm keenly aware of, of how difficult it is to counsel patients to people, you know, who, who have good reason to be impatient. Um, but my fear is that we're making it worse, not better, you know, by 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 trying to impose this agenda on schools now. Um, if we're not giving kids, um, you know, the, uh, opportunities to be fully literate, if we're not giving them opportunities to have a rich, full education, to become civically engaged and, 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 not, and, and knowingly engaged, in other words, not march in someone else's army, but have agency, as my friend Ian Rowe describes it, um, well, then we're just going to make things worse, not better. Um, and, and I mean, that, in my best judgment, that's what we're doing. And, and that's what I'm trying to, uh, hoping that we can, can, can gird ourselves against. All right, I'll throw you an easy one, relatively speaking. Are you surprised to see school, you know, elite private schools like Burley go as far as they did uh, in oh, this man. social justice? Yeah, I really am. I mean, I got to say, um, my, my, my dark joke for years has been that private school was the price of peace in my home. And what a price, because um, I was a public school kid. Look, I mean, I, you know, I shouldn't admit this to, to, to near strangers, but I don't think I even knew what these schools were until I was well into my 20s. Um, I grew up in Long either. Island, you know, also private blue collar school, yeah. kid. I mean, public school. Okay, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you had said to me private school as a kid, I'd said, oh, you mean Catholic school. If you'd yeah. said to me boarding school, I would have said, what did you do? <laughs> Why are they right, sending right. you away? That was military. Right, right, right. Was, that was for the yeah, bad kids who... Exactly. 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 My dad was forever threatening to send me to military academy. Oh, so I, I my brother. No idea. For me, it was my brother. Okay. I was yeah, the good I, kid. I, I, yeah. yeah. I literally didn't know this world existed until I had met people in my adult life who had been through it. And of course, you know, at the time I swore, you know, oh, I'll never do that with my kid. Um, and, and then I became a public school teacher and, and lost the courage of my convictions. Um, but look, I, I'm going to be brutally candid with you and just say, if, um, if my daughter were just starting school 
today, I mean, she's 24, but if she were four, would I send her to a Brearley or a poly prep where she ultimately graduated from? No, I would not. Um, when I say that was the price of peace, uh, the, the price might have been spent on divorce lawyers instead. There is absolutely no chance that I would have uh, agreed to uh, put my daughter um, in, in, in that environment. It just makes no sense. And to your very good point, Andrew, it, it, it's bizarre to me. In other words, I, I don't understand what interest it serves. Um, you know, look, I mean, you know, there's always room for a child's education to be more nuanced, more, more um, uh, you know, comprehensive, and, and obviously more diverse and inclusive. Um, but the dimensions that it's taken on at some of the New York City elite schools is, it's just a cartoon. Frankly, and, and look, I, I'm I'm going to call out some 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 of our our friends in this world as well. I, I'm I'm frankly out of patience. Uh, praise to you for for you know being willing to put your name on the critique. But how many hundreds, maybe thousands of people like you sit on the sidelines and and seethe and don't vote with their feet or or you know post anonymously on social media complaining? Um, you know. If you're not willing to, 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 to raise your voice and sign your name, so to speak, well, I, at the risk of sounding harsh, I'm a little bit out of patience with you at this mm -hmm. point. Um, I, it just makes no sense to me whatsoever that people with literally every opportunity and every um, mechanism of choice available to them do not act upon. Um, you know, my, my, my friends in the school choice world, and I consider myself to be a school choice guy, get, you know, a little bit... Uh, cranky with me when I when I point this out. But if if elite parents with you know, fully resourced are not acting on on those opportunities and choice, then the, the entire model for choice is called into question. There just are not enough people that are willing to put their name to a petition to, you know, write a letter to a teacher. And quite frankly, if you even had a, you know, if you had, let's say you've got 5% doing it, if you had 20%, it would be, it would absolutely change the landscape. Yeah, look, for what it's worth, it, this doesn't surprise me, and this is inside baseball stuff, but when my daughter was at Brearley, I don't know if it still exists, but there was this kind of in-house mailing list called the Brearley Unofficial. Yeah. That parents, is it was still there? Yeah. It's still, uh, well, I, I got kicked moderator. off of it, but my wife still gets it. Okay. Well, there you go. Before I knew, you know, you know, a failure to read the room, because I was you know, starting my education career at the same time my daughter was going to school. And because I had a, you know, a media background, they said, oh, let Pondicio run the, the, the Brearley Unofficial. And I did for a year or two. And I thought everybody wanted to talk about education. Oh, hell no. They, wa yeah. they wanted to talk yeah. about, you know, Airbnbs and Paris and soccer coaches right. and, and, and restaurant recommendations. God forbid you mentioned the thing that we all had in common, which is our child's school. You know, that, that is like Voldemort, the thing that you, you dare not say. Uh, so because of that, I'm not entirely surprised, but it is, come on, it's gutless, right? Um, to, to, to social consequences. I think people are, are they fear what's going to happen to them, to their, you know, social, well, their cocktail party circuit and, and on their children. I think that's right. And, and if we're brutally honest, I think we have to admit it's not a, it's not a terribly controversial notion to those outside of this world, but come on, folks in that world are trying to to, to, to what, what was the Bill Clinton line? Protect their viability in the system. They still want that Ivy League acceptance letter. So they will sit on the sidelines and see, but they're not going to rock the boat. And, and at, at this point, you know, I, I've said this a couple of times, I'll say it publicly. You know, I write a lot about education. I will never quote an anonymous parent at one of these schools again in anything I write about it. Like if you're not willing to, 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 to make your critique out loud, 
then then call someone who cares because I'm out of patience with you. Well said. Boy, you're catching you're you're catching me in a in a really blunt mood. Um, <laughs> forgive me. No, that's that's I like that. <laughs> I get criticized for that, but no, no, I think that's right. I, the the biggest surprise for me was how I, I knew at Burley and and a lot of these other elite private schools that there was a substantial number of people very unhappy with the direction of these schools, and and I think oh. it's close to you know it, it's close to half. Uh, and, for, yeah. and and that includes people on the board of trustees and then yeah. that you have almost zero number of people that are willing to go publicly and put their name on something. It, yeah. it is absolute cowardice. There's no question about that. And, and that is why we haven't we have failed uh, effectuating change in the private school world. We made you know maybe a little bit of progress in the public school world because, you know, you do see people running for school boards and fighting and filing FOIA requests, things that you can't do in the private school world, but, but we have not succeeded at all. And what the schools have done in the last year, two things really that, uh, number one, they have absolutely, they, they have silenced parents. Um, they have threatened to kick their families out. Um, and, I, and, I, and I understand that. I, I don't understand why more parents won't leave. But, um, and the second thing is they are hiding things as, as untransparent as they were before, they are hiding things even more. You know, a lot of parents think, oh, it's better now. We're not getting those weekly DEI emails that we used to get. Well, yeah, but they're still doing it with the kids. Okay. Yeah. Beth, you want to switch to- If I can make one other yeah. point. I mean, I think public school parents really are leading the way here. Um, and they may have to, right? In other words, this, yeah. this is kind of the obverse of my point about why is it that parents who have the most choice avail themselves of it the least? Well, a lot of public school parents really don't have meaningful choice. Uh, so they have no choice but to stand and fight. Um, and, and, you know, look, look, I think this is the, the groups like Moms for Liberty and Parents Defending Education have, have, have done an important work. They get a lot of criticism. Um, but come on, that's the system we have. You know, why is it that we love civic engagement until, until somebody mm-hmm. uses it in a way we don't like? You know, it, just like the old cliche about like the, the, the answer to bad speech is more speech. Well, mm-hmm. if you don't like people whose views are different than yours, uh, expressing themselves at school board meetings and running for a school board, well, then step up. This is this is the way we roll in this country. It doesn't make any sense to me to critique it. Yeah, I, I am that public school mom. This about five years ago now, almost six years ago, where we noticed what was going on in our local school. And, um, you know, we did not have Parents Defending Ed, Moms for Liberty, these groups. We were kind of figuring out as we went along. Um, but it really was kind of a foreshadow to to what yeah. uh, was unveiled during largely COVID. Um, so, uh, and actually, uh, parents defending Ed was. Uh, I know Nikki Neely, and what we were doing as a parent group partially inspired her to to start that, realizing kind of the the we'd had her come to speak to our local group, and um, she founded defending Ed just. Parents defending ed, just yeah, like and she founded Parents Defending Ed, and just to understand, she saw kind of what parents were dealing with. So thank goodness um, that these groups have sprung up um, in great numbers too, because it's going to take it's going to take a lot of people uh, to turn this yeah. tide. We'll be right back with more from Robert Pondicio. The Biden administration is constantly finding new ways to fail and then blaming others for it, except when it is intentionally failing on issues like the border and energy policy. Well, we're not going to let them get away with that. I'm Greg Columbus. Join Jim Garrity of National Review and me each weekday for the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We'll give you the good, bad, and crazy news of the day and lots of laughs, too. Find us right here on the Ricochet Audio Network at ricochet.com or wherever you get your podcasts.
So, um, well, you are, as, as Andrew said at the outset, um, quite experienced and knowledgeable about school choice. So we would love to hear, um, and specifically charter schools with your with your book, what's the state of charter schools? Um, are, are they the answer and answer? Um, and do you, I guess, what are some of the strengths and possibly weaknesses that you've seen um, in your experience? Yeah, I think they're an answer. And and look, no sector of our education ecosystem is immune from these forces, and, and particularly the charter school world. It's funny, that, um, I'm not sure when this will go live, but this very morning, we're speaking on Tuesday, October 11th, I've got a massive piece in a magazine called Education Next. You're not going to find it on your newsstand, um, but you can find it online about New York's charter sector. And you know, I've been involved in it for over a decade now, both as a participant and a, and, a, and a chronicler of it. These same forces that we're describing in the private school world and in public education at large, you know, have, have, have came to the charter school world as well. Some, in, again, not new, they've been there for quite a while. I mean, if you think about it, it makes sense because charter schools in the main at least the bellwether schools, you know, folks like the, the, the KIPs and Achievement First Success Academies, you know, the, the marquee names in the charter school world are all aimed at improving academic and life outcomes for low-income kids of color. Um, that's, what the, that's what gave the charter school world, particularly in New York, its kind of energy and dynamism. So these same forces have, you know, have, have roiled the charter school world as well, uh, you know, at the risk of getting two in the weeds on this, New York State has had a charter school cap limiting the number of charter schools for the last several years, which means there's literally no more cap space in New York City. So and Ian Rowe recently had to overcome that to yes. open up his charter school. That's exactly right. Yeah, he figured out a very clever way to, to open uh, his Vertex Academy on, on existing charters. Um and the the unions tried to stop him because they they kind of recognized that this loophole, so to speak, uh, could 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 lead to more growth. But what what little growth there is in the charter school net se- sector in New York tends to be uh, single site, what we you know affectionately call mom and pop schools, and, and places in upstate New York where there's still cap space. But the larger picture is that all of the things that we used to 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 valorize about charters in New York. The organization, the, the the strict discipline, the academic um, standards are under fire. Um, you know they're perceived. It will not surprise you to hear as as white supremacist, as as anti-black. Um, Kip, most famously, a year or so ago, um, you know the biggest and most successful charter school network in the country, um, famously renounced. Uh, you know they 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 pulled their tagline: "Be be, be nice, work hard," and there was, you know, they, they issued all these statements that were, that sounded like they were the product of a struggle session, frankly. And, and what's happening here is that you've got a lot of young teachers who these schools depend on for, to, to, to staff their classrooms, who are now very much, um, you know, enmeshed in this kind of social justice orientation. So there's a real culture clash between the founding generation of folks who started these big networks and the young people who staff their classrooms. What I find remarkable and frankly a little bit sad is that all this happens over the heads of parents. I mean, if you talk to parents, I, I remember in, in, the, in the book I wrote about Success Academy, there's a scene where I'm, I'm sitting in, in the living room of a family, a Success Academy family, and I, I write something about if I close my eyes, I'm listening to my dad in the 1960s. In other words, what, what parents want out of schools, you know, working class families, black or white, um, want out of schools has never changed. It's never going to change. They want safety. They want 
you know, academics, they want upward mobility. This, this, the social justice conversation just happens largely above their heads. Um, there's a very brave woman named Stephanie Soroki de Garcia who runs the, 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 the Bria Charter School Network and Seton Educational Partners. She's one of the only people I know who's willing to say this on the record. Um, she, and she has said, you know, quoting her um, um, practically verbatim, she said, look, not one of my families has ever asked for more anti-racism pedagogy. You know, they're asking for academics and safety and character education. Other school leaders will, will acknowledge that off the record. Um, so, you know, but, but very few are willing to say so on the record. So in this piece for Education Next, which, which came out today, um, you, you know, you talk about not so long ago, there was bipartisan support for charter schools. Yeah. That changed, but it seemed to have changed, at least it seemed to have changed, before this push towards social justice, before the racial reckoning of 2020. What caused that, that shift that, that, you know, that, that you know, one side of our political spectrum completely abandoned charter schools? There, there, that's that gradually but suddenly thing. I, I think it's just a lot of changing, changing fashions and tastes. Um, like 20 years ago, uh, the things, again, that we valorized were kind of you know, let me come at this a different way. I, I think we have memory hold to a large degree the conditions that charter schools, urban charter schools were a response to. And I mean, I, I witnessed this firsthand. Um, schools, you know, New York City public schools 20 years ago when I began teaching were, you know, not well run. They were chaotic. Um, they were not safe. Um, discipline was non-existent. And a lot of charter schools they led with that. Like, look, these are safe places. We're going to have control of the classroom. We're going to create the conditions that are conducive to learning. You can't learn in chaos. That's an, that's, that's an obvious thing. Can I interrupt yeah. you for one second on that note? Because this is the controversial piece about charter schools or, or the piece that always you know, is viewed as controversial. Is it what they're doing in the classroom to keep kids safe? Or is it about because they can be selective about the kids they're allowing in the school? In other words, that they're not allowing these disruptive kids yeah, it's, it depends on that. I mean, it's, you can't paint with too broad of a brush. Um, I mean, I spent a year uh, embedded in a school, in a success academy school, literally across the street where I've been a student teacher. So, I mean, they are a little bit more, you know, so-called no excuses than a lot of others. Um, and they really prize, um, you know, classroom order. You, you can't kick kids out, right? You know, so, so the argument has been for years that, um, look, you know, the only difference between between a charter school and a public school is the door the kid walks into in the morning. You know, they, they walk into the public school, bad outcome. They walk into the charter school door, good outcome. The, the, I'm going to try to summarize a bit of my book in, two, in you know, 30 seconds or less, but I, I think that's a nuance-averse view of it. In other words, um, the, the argument I made in my book is like, look, the moment a parent raises his or her hand and says, hey, you know what? I want a charter school. They are, they are by definition, different and the family that says, you know, hey, you know, PS uh, 277, my old school down the, down the street, that's where we go. That's our school. So, I mean, there's, there's a level of discernment um, that, that differentiates charter parents from non-charter parents. And then once you get to an, another level of sophistication, no, I don't, I don't want just a charter school. I want KIPP. I want Uncommon. I want Success Academy. I'm going to do my homework. Um, you know, that's, that's a, a, a higher order. This is, again, I think a failure of social science where all we do is we look at Okay, I know your race. I know your income level. That's all I need to know to make comparisons. Well, that's nonsense. Um, so that's a controversial point for me to make as a as a charter advocate. But I find the comparisons to be you know unsatisfying. Um, so so 
Does this mean that there's a different standard of behavior in charter schools? Um, yeah, absolutely, of course. But there are limits to how much control they have. Um, and, and schools, you know, they, they exercise you know, peer pressure. They exercise parental pressure. In the case of Success Academy, they, they put it on steroids. Um, but there, there are, there, there's, there's gradations, shall we say, in the amount of control um, that a charter school uh, has over its, uh, over its student population. It's, it's, it's more than, than charter advocates like to admit, but it's less than charter critics think. So you talk about the culture of Success Academy, um, that they've created this culture and that it is central to the results that they are getting. Do you think that you can take elements of that culture and incorporate it into a public school? Like, do you think that that is um, even possible or is are we way far down that path? And, and, you know, especially with respect to some of the trends in social justice and some of this kind of very, I would say, more permissive attitude? Um yeah. Which is also called student-centered sometimes. And that was exactly how it was described to me when I became a teacher 20 years ago. Another one of those new, not new things. Um, but, you know, I, I think there are lessons that can be learned. The, the reason I wrote a book about Success Academy was to, to answer that exact question. Hey, what are, you know, this is a charter network that is not only successful, but it is wildly successful and, and demonstrably far more successful than its peer school network. So something has got to be happening there that we can learn from. And I mean, I've said this before, so I'm not, you know, saying anything scandalous. If you'd asked me before I spent time there, you know, what this, their secret is, I would have said, yeah, they're probably cheating, because it just it just didn't make sense to me how they could be getting these results that were just so extraordinary and so much better than than their not just their peer schools, but better results on standardized tests that even the richest, um, you know, most exclusive public school districts in places like, you know, Westchester and Long Island. So something is just doesn't pass the smell test here. Um, they're not cheating by, at least by my definitions, but some would uh, argue that the intense pr pressure they put on parents to conform to their model is a form of cheating. Um, you know, you can argue about that till, till, till the cows come home. But the larger lesson that I set to learn out was, okay, or to set out to learn was, what, what can we learn from what Eva Moskowitz has built at Success Academy that we can learn? Because that's what charter is supposed to be about, right? They're supposed to be engines of innovation that the entire K-12 system can learn from. So, so the answer to the question was not a lot, but not nothing. This gets into the kind of the arcana of how schools are run. But I thought they did some really genius things in terms of making the job of a teacher doable by ordinary men and women. I mean, this is confirmation bias on my part. But I've long thought that one of the, the real problems that hamstring that 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 give us worse results than than we might otherwise have is if we just ask teachers to do too much. You know, we ask them to, you know, to 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 uh, plan lessons, deliver lessons, you know, um, give feedback, uh, concern themselves with SEL, build relationships with family. like pick two of those, you know, and they're, they're, that's that's hard to do. So so Success Academy, I think, has you know, one they 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 hire well, two they train them well. Three, they um, they really have codified the job of a teacher in a way that they get that they get really good results from, frankly, inexperienced teachers. So that's something that that K twelve can can learn from. But could you make every school a success academy? No, you know the critical element there is parents are walking in with both eyes open and choosing this model, strict discipline and all, and you simply couldn't impose those conditions on on folks who were not actively choosing them. As the charter schools have. Uh, embraced the social justice 
orientation. Are we seeing, maybe it's too early to tell, or will we see a degradation in those terrific results that, that you know, that you've written about? Um, at Success Academy? I, I don't know. Eva Moskowitz is a very strong-willed woman. Um, I would, I would, you could lose a lot of money betting against her. And, and a lot of people are not just betting against her, but they're actively rooting for her to fail. Um, so, you know, the, the long knives are always out for, for, for Eva Moskowitz. Um, she's probably, and, and again, I'm kind of talking out of my ear here because I have not set foot inside of a Success Academy school post-pandemic. But my guess is um, she's going to you know, hold on to her model um, uh, with both hands. Uh, and as long as there are parents, and there are, who, who want that for their children, her greatest challenge is probably... Uh, continuing to, you know, uh, to, 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 to staff her classrooms because, I mean, her model seems to be dependent upon a steady supply of young teachers every year. Um, and and, and it, it, this is in the piece I wrote for Education Next, this is kind of the, 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 the subtext of it. A lot of schools are just finding it very, very difficult to resist, um, mm-hmm. you know, the, 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 the anti-racist social justice imperative because that's what young teachers come expecting. And they push back against a lot of the, you know, old school uh, uh, ways of running schools that that are more familiar to, to charter networks uh, 20 years ago. Um, you know, so, so that's the that's the real challenge. It's not is, is she going to abandon her model? I don't think she will. But, you know, can you find enough people who are who are um, persuaded or persuadable that this is what's in the best interest of kids? And in your article, uh, I got the sense that some places are actually using the language of excellence along with the language of equity which has kind of struck me at somewhat yeah. odds. Do you see charter schools, um, are they able, are, are, can those two terms coexist? Well, I mean, look, that's, that's the argument, right? I mean, who, you know, who, who am I to, to judge? Um, if folks believe that, um, you know, that they can, can pursue uh, an anti-racist pedagogy, a culturally responsive pedagogy, um, and still create great outcomes for kids, well, God bless. Um, you know, I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical of it because of what I know about language proficiency and, you know, how, how um, you know, language is a cultural construct. You know, when you're talking about, quote, decolonizing the curriculum, suddenly you may be, you know, talking about um, functionally denying kids access to the, you know, the, the background knowledge and cultural touchstones that undergird language at a molecular level. So, but but look, I'm not going to sit here and say it can't be successful. I, I'm saying what you know, I'm I'm skeptical based on what I know about um, about teaching, about schools, about language proficiency. Um, would I would I be like to be wrong about that? Sure, of course. I mean, you know, it would be foolish to be. I'm not I'm not stubborn to say that I know the answers here, and and you must do it my way. Um, but I mean, I think we I've already heard. Um, don't take my word, but talk to anybody who's working in, in one of these charter schools right now. They will tell you that, you know, discipline is, is a problem right now. Uh, they're, they're, they're struggling, um, you know, to keep control of classrooms. Test scores are down, et cetera. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the early returns are not promising. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm willing to take the, the, the social justice warriors at their word, so to speak. And if they think that this is truly in the best interest of kids, well, that's great. But as a public policy matter, you have to deliver on it. Um, and I mean, I'm going to again, you know, invoke Stephanie Soroki, who I, who I, De Garcia, who I mentioned earlier, who I think has quoted the piece as saying, "Look, we are, you know, charged by the state to just deliver results for kids, and if we can't do that, we shouldn't be in business." And she's right. 
You know, I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's the real tension in all of this is that um, I think at the biggest picture level, the highest level of abstraction, you've kind of got a, a public education and an education establishment that is just kind of pursuing its own agenda. And it's forgetting the fact that these are, you know, government organizations, so to speak, that these are public dollars, you know, a school is the state, right? And, and, and the permission structure does not exist to just kind of pursue your own social justice agenda or, or any agenda. I mean, there has to be, you know, buy-in buy from, you know, from all elements, all stakeholders involved, from, from policymakers and elected officials down to mom and dad. Um, you know, you just, that, that, that to me is, is you know, is the, the largest theme here is, is, is if there's a pendulum swinging between, you know, kind of uh, schools and public education, K-12 at large, pursuing its own agenda, whether it's public, private, et cetera, and, and you know, the, the, the legitimacy of, of it all, um, you know, as a public policy matter, that pendulum has got to come back a little bit. You know, that, 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 that all of these fights, I think, are, are, are happening in that space between what is the legitimate, this brings us full circle, right, Andrew, to your opening question. You know, what is the school for? You know, yeah. right now, a lot of, there's a lot of folks in K-12 who think school is for, uh, is, is a social justice mechanism. And there's a lot of parents and others who are like, um, wait a minute, who do you think you are that you get to make that decision? Uh, these are unresolved questions, um, but and I expect they're going to remain unresolved for 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 quite some time. But uh, that's that at the end at the end of the day, that's what all of these fights are about. Our very last question, then we're going to let you go. You wrote a piece um, recently called "Is School Choice Good for America?" Where I think you you legitimately and correctly criticized libertarians and some conservatives for solely focusing on school choice and sort of abandoning reforming regular public schools. Can we do both? I mean, I, mean I, I think you're right. I think we have to do both. But, yeah. but is that possible? Look, I don't think we have any choice, honestly. Um, you know, I mean, I guess I guess um, having spent most of this conversation uh, probably upsetting my former colleagues, um, you know, fellow teachers uh, in, in the public school and charter school world. Now, now I'll upset my 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 school choice friends. It, I, I just don't think it's practical to to as as school choice advocacy has done. To basically sell the notion, look, public schools are are damaged and broken. They can't be fixed. Get out. You know, demand choice, homeschool your kids. And it doesn't matter why you think it's broken, whether it's because, you know, you view them as kind of you know engines of indoctrination or they're just, you know, not not teaching kids how to read. I, I think there's there's uh, it's it's short sighted for choice advocates to kind of um, fear monger, to sell that failure to advance an agenda that, that I'm, that I'm part of. I mean, I'm a choice guy, right? Um, you know, the vast majority of American children go to zone public schools and probably will until the sun goes out, you know, so, so it just makes no sense whatsoever to wash your hands uh, of, of the kids. Or, or if you want to look at it another way to, to, to turn them over to the bad guys and just say, Hey, yeah, okay. You, you can, you can teach the vast majority of American kids, whatever you like, as long as my kid, you know, has has an escape hatch, uh, I, I I think we will we will ultimately see that that is not a good strategy because you know I was just saying this to somebody the other day. I mean, yet yesterday I wrote my the biggest check I write every year is for school taxes, and I wrote that check yesterday for a school system that I don't teach at that my daughter never attended in upstate New York. But I don't pretend for a second I don't have a vested interest in the outcomes of of the kids in my community. I'm deeply interested in what happened to them. 
And if some of this nonsense started showing up in, in um, that school system, well, then I'd be that loudmouth guy at the school board meeting. I'd be that guy running for school board and saying, wait a minute, not, not, not in my name, not for the kids in this community. You can't do that. We don't have the, you don't have the permission to do that. Um, so I think it's, it's, uh, it's short-sighted, again, to the degree to which choice is advancing uh, by, by selling discontent and selling a vision of public education as bad and broken. Um, I think that's short-sighted and we will, we will rue the day when, when that happens. And look, as a practical matter, we, we, we just can't afford to, to turn our backs on those schools. Yeah, well, well said. We have our work cut out for us, but we thank you for coming on Take Back Our Schools. And I'll say to our listeners, uh, Robert Pandisio, there is not a better writer on education issues in this country uh, than he is. So I That's encourage everybody to go to go. It, no, I, I, I really do believe that. So read read everything he writes. Robert, thank you so much for joining us. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for the conversation. Thank you. Anytime. Well, he had me at, at Edie Hirsch and the cultural literacy, I have to admit. I, I actually have those volumes. I have the book that Edie Hirsch yeah. wrote as well as there's actually this great, it's almost like a dictionary of this shared knowledge. Um, and I keep that on my table, my coffee table in the family room. And I, I actually do just pick it up every now and then. And I very much hope that my children do just because I think it was such a good point where we started that, um, you know, we really have lost a lot of this shared knowledge as citizens. And it is something that Edie Hirsch writes about, um, clearly uh, made a, an impression on uh, Robert Pondicio. And it, it's really sad. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a saying that kids are being taught to hate the country. And quite frankly, they are um, in some yeah. ways. And it's really, you know, you, you can't have a functioning society when the kids don't believe in it. And so, you know, it's not that we're not without our faults, but honestly, um, we just, we have to, we have to get back. It is kind of getting back to civics, certainly, but it's also just getting back to some of the, you know, the things that we all at once thought were worth knowing, like the ideas between truth and art and beauty. And, you know, in many schools, that's now just being painted as, you know, products of Western civilization, which was just started by white males. And it's just, it's just very sad. It, it is sad. And, and, but it's, you know, it's even, we're, we're not just not teaching these lessons. We're not just not teaching people to respect you know the founding principles we're also not teaching them to read and write yes the i mean our public school systems especially are, are atrocious when you look at metrics uh obviously covid made things you know school closures oh, made things did you so see much what worse. came out like they what was it it was like the worst um step back in 30 years yeah. in terms of like they lost five points in reading it's just it's um and it wasn't high to supposed- begin with i mean we're talking about yeah. and, and especially in you know we, we you know in inner cities in low-income areas we're talking about People reading on grade level in the 10% kind of, I mean, we're not talking about, okay, we went from 90% grade level to 80%. We're, we're talking minuscule numbers of, of kids that are reading, doing math on, you know, just grade level. There's a, a city in downstate Illinois, um, 2% for 2%. black kids. Wow. For, for wow. black kids. Wow. I think it was 6, 6% overall, which is not great. And now we're um, spending more, you know, we're, social justice on social emotional learning, even less and less time on basic skills. I mean, this is terrifying mm-hmm. for so many reasons. It is. And so, you know, what we talked about towards the end there, like, what is the answer? And clearly choice plays a role, but you can't ignore yeah. the public schools um, yeah. at the same I time. I mean, right. not when 95% of kids go, go to them. 
Uh, I thought it was interesting in terms of how can you transplant some of the more successful elements of places like Success Academy in public schools. And I honestly think it is it will not happen unless parents demand it. Yeah, well, I think look, parents have to. But uh, but I think the thing that I think Robert didn't want to say, um, which which I think he maybe or maybe he's just a little more optimistic than I am, is as these charter schools that have been, you know, oasises in, you know, in certain neighborhoods that have done terrific work as they have gone down the social justice path. Mm-hmm. I think we've lost them too. And I think your terrific question of, you know, is, 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 can you have both, uh, you know, rigor or whatever the word you use? Um, you oh, know, equity and excellence. Equity, equity mm-hmm. and excellence. Uh, and, and Robert sort of, you know, hedged a little bit on that. I, I don't think you can. Um, mm-hmm. In fact, even, even my, my former head of school at really went in it. And one of her responses to my letter, uh, you know, criticized, me and other parents for saying that, you know, that those are not opposites. I think they are, they are absolutely opposites in the way that they define equity. Oh, I think so. I mean, when you're saying things that meritocracy is a myth, yeah. which is in not just, just a about myth. every equity it's a white, presentation. It's that not I've just seen. a myth. It is a white supremacist concept. That's right. meritocracy amongst um, all these other things uh, that are, that are the reasons why we always send our kids to school. Yeah, no, it's going to be and if... perfectionism and good behavior and, mm-hmm. and individualism and, you know, all these things that we we used to think are good things are now being taught as evil, bad things that have to be dismantled. Right. And what I often see missing is, OK, so if if that is all bad, excellence is bad, meritocracy is a myth. Right. What is it you're offering? And so far as I can see, it's lower standards, no. excuses yes. and or, you know, something is 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 racist. And so that's the excuse. And, you know, probably, um, well, it's certainly not getting those reading and math scores up. I will tell you that. No, it is not. Well, on that note, that this is one of the more pessimistic ways to end our Take Back Our Sports <laughs> episodes, but we'll be back next time for someone who actually has something optimistic to say. No, I mean, there's, there's people doing good work. I mean, Robert mentioned some of those organizations, Parents Defending Education, Moms for Liberty, No Left Turn in Education. There are others, local parent groups like Beth, yours, Nutrient Neighbors, um, you know, doing terrific work to try to fight these issues, try to reform schools organizations doing things for school choice. But but I think to what you said, to what Robert said, to what I've said many times, we need orders of magnitude, more parents, many, many more parents to wake up, be courageous, speak up, run for school boards, fight in their schools, fight for our children. Um, otherwise, we're not going to win this. Well, maybe there are a few listening to this podcast right yeah. now. Uh, with that, Thank you for listening. And if you enjoyed today's show, please share it and give us a positive review. And do please join us again. And so on behalf of my co-host, Andrew Gutman, this is Beth Feely, and we will be back soon with another episode of Take Back Our Schools. Ricochet. Join the conversation.